0: my father spent four decades serving in our armed forces. He enlisted in the army at the age, I think he was 17, 16, 17, in 1931. Yeah, my dad, Uh, in 1931, and retired in 1968. So in his 37 years in the army, he spent eight of those years in, in active combat theaters. In his uh, gruff, self-deprecating, yet humorous way that, that many of our vets from that time period, many of our vets in general have, he describes his years of combat service as eight years of fighting malaria mosquitoes in the mud and blood, and occasionally killing a commie or a Jap. <laughs> My dad was not politically correct. Um, he ended up marrying one of those Japs, and I'm um, his son. But. I did love that about his generation, and I love that about God's irony as well. Obviously, my father knew a lot about combat and war, Uh, and he would say that getting the right intelligence was usually key for his platoon when they're in an engagement, knowing about the enemy location, size, armament, munitions, uh, mobility, support. Those things were critical before engaging an enemy. It stands to reason that what's true of just physical combat is probably very true of spiritual combat as well. And what we have here in Revelation chapter 13 is, for lack of a better way, an intelligence report from John showing us the lay of the land, so to speak, showing us what the engagement is going to be like, what the enemy might be like. If you recall with me, at the end of chapter 12, verse 17, it ended with that ominous statement. After the dragon was basically denied the victory over the child and was defeated by this child, He was then determined to make war with the offspring of the woman. So it says this, then the dragon became furious, this is Revelation 12 verse 17, and went off to make war on the rest of the woman's offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So our passage this morning is basically John giving us an intelligence report. These are the two agents, so to speak, that the dragon has sent to make war against God's people. And I will be honest with you, it doesn't look very good. We're going to find out in a few moments. I wish I could say that the enemy was disorganized, undisciplined, and they didn't have much support. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. If you happen to be a Christian and you were hoping that your, your particular term or call or tour of duty could be easy, maybe you get a desk job in the supply unit, that is not the case, as we'll soon see. If you have a God's Word, you should be at Revelation 13 at this moment. Would you stand with me as we read this intelligence report from John? Revelation 13, John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. "'with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. "'And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. "'Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. "'And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. "'One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, "'and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast.' And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Verse 11, "'Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth.'" telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Verse 15, And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beasts, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, it seems like every week as I'm studying to prepare for Sunday, I feel like I'm dealing with the hardest chapter of Revelation to interpret until I get to the next one, and this Sunday is no difference. Um, you know, but if we keep some basic rules of interpretation in mind, Revelation 13 turns out to be not as bizarre as it might seem on first glance. So I do this just about every couple of weeks, but it's so important that I want to talk to you about how do we interpret Scripture because it helps us guide our way through. And these are applicable not just to Revelation but to any part of the Bible. And in fact. Any piece of literature is, these are helpful for. The first thing you have to remember is the genre. What type of literature are we actually dealing with? And in, in Revelation, we're dealing with visions and symbols and apocalyptic. It's not to be literal as much as it is visual. I hope by this point, as you're reading Revelation, you are seeing the things that we're actually reading as well, right? That you're seeing these beasts as John describes them. It's, it's intended not to be rigid, but rather fluid. It's a painting to impress us, not a puzzle to solve. The impression is to move us, not a mystery to confuse us. We are to see the forest and not just the individual trees. That's the nature of this genre of literature, apocalyptic, prophecy, symbol. The second interpretive rule is... That it's got to make sense in the original context it has to make sense to the readers that john first wrote to before we can assume that's got to make sense to us in other words a passage of scripture can never mean now what it didn't mean then right uh, we talked about that it's not about what it means to you it actually matters what it meant first and in this passage i know some of you are like chomping at the beat beat or what's the chomping at the bit because it's the mark of the beast. Yeah, man, 666, Iron Maiden. Let's talk about that. And I've been a Christian long enough, guys. I remember, oh, it's like the barcodes. That's what's the mark of the beast, right? And then in the 90s, it's like RFID chips. That's what it is now. And now it's like, is the vaccine, the mark of the beast. Okay, <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I'm, I'm pretty sure most of you are probably going to get disappointed with what I have to say about it. But that's just the way it is. Okay. Because here's the thing, if you're a first century Christian living in Turkey and John, you're reading this letter, are you thinking RFID chip? Oh man, John's telling me about the, the radio frequency identification chip. Oh yeah, we don't have radios. What's the frequency? Oh, well, I don't know, but that's what John's talking about. Okay, if, that's, if it doesn't mean anything to them, it can't mean that to us now. Very important principle of literature. And then third and finally, there are more rules, but these are enough to get us going. Scripture always interprets scripture, right? You have to read Revelation with the Old Testament in mind, not a news app in hand. Oh, this is what's going on in the world. That's exactly what the Bible's saying. That's not how you read the Bible. You read Revelation with what the Old Testament has said. And I've said it this way. If you come up with new doctrines or new teaching just on the book of Revelation, there's a good chance you're reading it incorrectly. So genre, very important. What did it mean to the original audience? And are you letting Scripture interpret Scripture? Now, with that being said, I think we can make better sense of the two beasts, the mark, and the end into the text, Revelation 13. Now, as if the dragon from chapter 12 wasn't bad enough, chapter 13 reveals to us two beasts, one from the sea and one from the land. In verse 7, it says, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, granted, that's not a very encouraging report from our intelligence briefing, is it? But if you've been in our study, that shouldn't surprise you because you already learned in Revelation 11 that the, the court of the Gentiles, been, or the, the, the outer court of the temple has been given to the nations to trample over, and the two witnesses died and the world celebrated. They were conquered, but things turned out quite differently. My point simply is we've seen this before. And just in case you think this is just overwhelming, I want you to keep in mind, did you notice how often John is reminding us of the sovereignty of God, even in light of these beasts? Numerous times, it is said, the beast was allowed to do this, the beast was allowed to do that, the beast was given this, the beast was given that. Even in the midst of its rampage and war, the beasts are just on a leash from God. And it can only do what God allows the beast to do. But more to the point, we know who this beast is because we've seen it before. As a matter of fact, Hunter just read to us from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, in many ways, guides the interpretation of much of what we see in the book of Revelation. In Daniel 7 in particular, Daniel has a vision, and he has a vision of four beasts. One a lion, one a bear, one a leopard, and a fourth that's unlike all the others but devours everything in its path. In Revelation 13, we have a beast, and did you notice that this beast resembles a lion, a bear, and a leopard? Exactly the same beast that Daniel saw in his vision in Daniel 7. In other words, the beast we have here in Revelation 13 seems to represent all four of the beasts that Daniel saw emerging from the sea right before the Son of Man descends and pres- presented before the Ancient of Days. It is the recording of the end times. In other words, and if you were here in the beginning of our series, I think it was the first sermon or the second sermon, we spent a lot of time in Daniel 7 correlating Daniel 7 to John's vision of the Revelation. And so in many real ways, what John is seeing in Revelation and Daniel's recording in Daniel 7, they're seeing the same thing and recording different elements for their audience. Daniel sees the vision of these four beasts, and if we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture, there's a good chance that whatever Daniel says those beasts are, are what those beasts are in John's vision as well, and Daniel tells us what those beasts are, or rather the angel reveals to Daniel what those beasts are in Daniel chapter 7. They symbolize the major empires of the world. Now, depending upon how you want to separate them, whether it was um, Babylon, Babylon, the Medo-Persians, Greece or Rome, or Babylon, Assyria, um, the Medes and the Persians, depending on how you classify them, the point is each of those beasts represent the world empires that ruled humanity during the time. If that's the interpretation in Daniel 7, and in Revelation 13, John sees all of these being combined into one, there's a good chance that the beast that we read here, at least in the first 11 verses, is symbolic as a representation of all kingdoms of the world. That what John is seeing here in the beast is the kind of amalgamation, the sum total of the human empire, the edifice of human power, control, and godless autonomy. That is the vision that John is seeing now. And to the original readers, there is no doubt that as they saw and read this vision from John and saw in their mind's eye what John was talking about, there is no doubt in my mind that they were thinking immediately of the Roman Empire. Not only because they knew their Old Testament, but if you recall with me in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, the Roman Empire was the singular force behind all the persecution of the church. And so personifying the Roman Empire as a wild beast devouring all was a very fitting illustration. And furthermore, all through the Bible and history, we have seen human powers, governments, empires, monarchies, the state, be completely brutal and the persecutor of God's people demanding full allegiance, and putting to death all that would disagree or disobey. Now, as Americans, that seems really odd, because why? We are the inheritors of one of the best government systems ever to be on this planet. But if you just read enough history, you know what I'm saying is true. That it has always been the state, because the state is the accumulation of human authority and power, and so rarely does humanity bend the knee to a power above itself itself. And so often the state has come against God's people. Whether it's Daniel chapter 3, you recall that passage, where Nebuchadnezzar has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to his his, his idolatrous worship. Or was the Roman Empire throwing Christians to the lions in the first century? Or the Catholic kings crushing Protestant peasants? Or the Japanese shogun crushing the church in Japan? Or communist regimes all through Eastern Europe? Even democracies like our own, demanding complete, unquestioning adherence to its demands. Totalitarianism, friends, whether it's a hard totalitarianism that we saw in the Soviet Union and communism, or fascism, or Maoism, or or soft totalitarianism, the kinds of things that we see happening in Western democracies, totalitarian governments always want to put themselves in place of God because they demand full authority. So what are we looking at here at Revelation 13? How do we make sense of this vision? What John is showing us is that this beast has always been and will be in its final intensified manifestation the deification of secular authority. The deification of secular authority, a counterfeit power that demands total allegiance and praise and submission. Now what might this look like? In our world, we see this vision, what, is it, what, the, what might this look like here for us? And here's one illustration, a small one, that can make the point. Uh, maybe you've seen it, like in my neighborhoods, uh, my neighborhood, there's some people, you know, everyone's got their yard signs that, that kind of, we're all trying to identify ourselves with stuff, right? And I've been seeing this sign, we believe in science. I was like, whoa, great, because I guess the rest of us don't, right? But yeah, have anyone seen that sign, we believe in science? Nobody Man, I live in a liberal neighborhood, I guess, or something, right? I gotta live where you guys. Well, so, now let me get this straight. Let me be clear. I'm a nerd. I love science, right? One of my elders said, You're a total nerd, because we went on a retreat and I brought a bunch of books with me to read while we're at our beach retreat. But I love science, but here's the thing the problem with that statement. If anyone knows anything about science, you know two things. Number one, there's no such thing as science in the singular. As if science was some uniform, monolithic belief system that says all and is always in agreement. There's no such thing as science. There are sciences, right? There are sciences, and they develop theories and hypotheses and conclusions, and and they they grow and they come up, and some are right and some are wrong. There's no science. Like it's a new oracle of Delphi or the man behind the curtain, that when science speaks, that's the truth. But isn't that how people are looking to science? I'm not against it. Totally the sciences and its development. But it's not this all-knowing, omniscient, inerrant thing that we bow down to. But isn't that what we're starting to see? As if that ends the discussion, oh, well, you got faith, and well, you know, I believe in science. Okay. You know, go to Wikipedia, there's a whole page that lists all the scientific discoveries that we thought was truth and later turned out to be completely erroneous. One very clear example that we are reaping the the, the consequence of to this day, in the late 19th and very early 20th century, it was science, the all-knowing thing, that told us that There were different species, and some of the, the, there were different human races, and some human races were superior to other human races, and it could be proved you had cranium size, genetic makeup, so therefore some races were superior to other races. Yeah, that went really well, right? And it's science today that's saying, no, that's totally not true. Well, I'm glad they figured it out, but the consequences we live with to this day are horrible. The Bible's always said there's just one race, it's the human race. My point simply is, how do we see counterfeit authorities demanding our obedience? There's one example that we might see in our culture. Now, John's readers, as they saw this vision or read this vision of John's, they, they would have recognized immediately the blasphemous names in verse 1 on the beast's heads with the Caesars who deified themselves. You didn't know that the Caesars believed themselves the incarnation of various gods sometimes, so For example, Caesar Augustus, um, he wasn't the first that held to this, but his nickname, so to speak, was Divas, which was one like the gods. Then you had Caesar Nero, and his kind of moniker was the savior of the world. So you can imagine why he didn't like the Christians, right? Because, okay, we said, Caesar, you're not the savior of the world. Jesus Christ is. Domitian, Caesar Domitian, who was the Caesar during the time of the book of Revelation, his moniker was Dominus et Deus Noster, our Lord God. So you can imagine as soon as these Christians read about the blasphemous names on these horns, horns representative of power, they would have thought of the Roman Empire. The sad fact is that because people are always impressed with power, this beast had ten horns, lots of power, they will always worship power. It's true in our day and age today as well. We're impressed by power, so we worship it. Look at verse 4 and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? But friends, it's not just brute power that people will bow before, but the power of words and ideas can force you into submission as well, can't they? Look at verse 5 and maybe 6, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Maybe it's an agnostic professor who wants to stamp out your faith. Maybe it's a naive high school teacher with weird views of social justice and ethnic equality. Maybe it's a left-wing politician. Maybe it's a bitter or woke employer who doesn't want you to have any conversations about sin or righteousness. But they do want to push in a new morality of the, the new se- human sexuality movement, or systemic racism, or postmodern pa- power narratives in our culture. See, they don't want the, the old oppressive Ten Commandments morality, but we do like this new kind of morality, and they bring that in. And either you bow down or you get crushed. It's a powerful enemy we face. This report that John gives us is a bit daunting. But friends, if you read carefully, if you read his intelligence report again, although these powers are powerful, you realize at the end of the day, they're just kind of a counterfeit of what real power is. Notice that phrase in verse 4, Who is like the beast? Well, if you're familiar with your Bible, that's the stuff that God's people were always saying. But they said it differently, right? They said it, Who is like our Lord? Exodus 15, 11, as God delivered the people of God through the Red Sea, they said, who is like you, O Lord? Who is like you among the gods? The implication is, there's no one like you. Micah seven eighteen. who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? And it goes on, even the Lord himself says in Isaiah 44, 7, who's like me? Psalm 35, O Lord, who is like you? Psalm 71, 19, O God, who is like you? You see, the people of the beast, they're just modeling themselves after the worship was given to god but here's another thing that's interesting look at verse three one of its heads speaking of the beast seemed to have a mortal wound but its mortal wound was healed well that should sound familiar because in revelation 5 6 we saw, uh, saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain what's going on here this beast this secular authority is really just the jesus wannabe ripoff. he's just copying what the bible has always talked about the lord and he still demands the same allegiance and worship. Friends, the reason I'm bringing that up is this is where the battle is. This is what our intelligence from the field is telling us. The question we have to answer is will we bow to the secular state, the world system that demands hard allegiance and will persecute us for our disobedience? Or will we fight against it even if the world itself is too afraid to do so? Did you notice? We're back at verse 4. Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Do you notice God's people? Who is like our God? Gracious and kind, compassionate, pardoning iniquities and transgression. Who is like our God, thinking of the poor and the needy? Who is like you, O Lord? But when it comes to the beast, who's like the beast? This guy's got raw power. Boy, that's an very interesting point right there, friends. Even if you get nothing from what I've said so far, hear this. Be careful of what you're going to fear in life. And yes, you can choose what you fear. Because what the Bible's telling us here is what you fear is what you worship. You are going to worship the things you fear. Who's like the beast? Who can fight against that? We worship the beast. God's people have never worshiped him because they fear him like that, although we are called to fear God because the Bible knows you will worship what you fear. We say, who is like our God, gracious and kind and compassionate, pardoning our iniquities? So that's the question. Will we bow the knee to the secular state, the world system? Now, now, now don't think I'm like telling you to be a two-way enthusiast and, and vote to recall Gavin Newsom kind of stuff, but I'm also not telling you not to vote to recall Newsom. I'm, I'm just saying, I'm not like, hey, I got my Proud Boys membership. And, I'm not and, and by the way, this is not camo. Okay? This, this is leopard spot, and I just happened to wear it. I wasn't thinking of wearing something that looks like camo when I'm talking about war. Okay? My, my point is, when I say beware the state, I don't mean because there's a bunch of Democrats or Republicans or Green Party or independents. I'm saying the heart of humanity, apart from submitting itself to God, will always demand our full allegiance that only goes to Christ himself. Whether you got left wing or right wing, we have to always realize that this world, this is a battlefield, and they're demanding allegiance. And we always have to be aware of that. This is why in verse 9, John takes a line right out of Jesus, right out of Jesus' playbook from the Gospels. If anyone has an ear let him hear, endure, this is a call for endurance, and faith of the saints, because the state is intimidating, and it's powerful, it's like a ferocious line, and it demands submission, and for some Christians, it will require fighting against, but the first beast is not alone, the secular authority is not alone, enter the second beast, and the second beast here, verses 11 through 18, is called the false prophet, not here in, in chapter 13, but we know from chapter 16, chapter 19, chapter 20, the second beast is also called the f- false prophet. Now, if the first beast is the power of the secular state, that, that world system of man that exalts itself as God, as a counterfeit king, then the second beast is a counterfeit priest or prophet. In other words, the second beast is false false religion, false beliefs, false gospels, and here's a couple of reasons why I say that. One, as I just said, this beast is called a false prophet, but secondly, look at verse 11, this beast, it looks like a lamb, the metaphor for Jesus, but it speaks like a dragon. Its words do not, are not commensurate with the way it looks. Verse 12, its job is to make the world worship the first beast, and then verse 13, It mimics the very acts of the true prophets of God, like Elijah, for example. So the picture we have from John is that in this war, the the dragon is out to make war against the offspring or the the people of God, and he employs not just the intimidation of secular authority, but the deception of false teachings. And they are powerful. False teaching has always threatened to undo the people of God, whether it was uh, the first century Gnostic teachings Um, liberal Christianity in the 20th century, progressive or woke Christianity in the 21st century, but more than that, the the ever-present temptation to worship at the altar of our feelings, right? That's a false teaching that just just, I, there's a, there isn't a Sunday or week that goes by. Like, I'm not afraid that anybody in this church is going to be susceptible to Gnosticism. Like, I, I guarantee it. You don't even know what that is, but I guarantee you wouldn't buy it if you did, right? I'm not worried that you'll be tempted by Mormonism, Jehovah Witness. I'm not tempted that, I'm not worried that you're going to fall prey to a lot of those doctrines, but you know the one that you will fall prey to? Because it's everywhere in evangelical Christianity. It goes something like this. But doesn't God want me to be happy? I know that this is against what the Bible teaches. I know I'm not supposed to do that. But doesn't God want me to be happy? Was Jesus happy when he was nailed to a cross? No. God wants you to be obedient. Because through obedience comes joy. Happening, friends, is happenstance. God's, I mean, and I know it sounds so harsh because this teaching is so prevalent but God is not interested in you being happy at the expense of your holiness. Oh, like a good parent, it's great if you are happy, if that happiness is rooted in joy and obedience and righteousness, but he is not pleased when your happiness is in the wake of ruining relationships, defying his commands, and and blowing your witness for Christ in the world. I was just praying with our elders. It's like every church discipline issue I go through here and in other churches I always hear from the same person, well, I just want to be happy. Yeah, I promise to be faithful, but I want to be happy. Yeah, I promise to provide, but I just want to be happy. That's the false teaching that is decimating the church. Friends, be aware of men and women with high theological degrees church credentials thousands of twitter followers followers big mega churches who are not teaching you the bible and be aware of men and women who teach you how you feel is more important than how you obey and for those of you who are worried i'm I'm getting into legalism that's fine jesus says if you love me you're not going to feel but he says if you love me you obey my commands we are called to obedience and i don't know a single soldier who always feels like obeying his CO but you salute because that's what you're commanded to do. We have to watch out for false teaching, whether it comes from a false teacher or from our own hearts, because it might look like a lamb, but it's a dragon. We are easily intimidated by the power of the state, and we are easily deceived by our own false beliefs. And so what we have here is the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Now, as we look at John's intelligence report and you're thinking biblically, and you should be always thinking biblically when you're reading the Bible, you say, duh, but believe me, a lot of people don't. Are you noticing a pattern? Okay, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and now all of a sudden we got the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Hey, this is more counterfeit stuff. This is more the counterfeit. Who is like the beast? You're ripping that We've always said who is like our God because there's no one like him, and you're saying there's no one like the beast? And now you've got a counterfeit Jesus, uh, uh, he's got a mortal wound that he was healed, you're ripping off the lamb that looked like he was slain but standing, and now you've got this counterfeit trinity going on here. You see, the enemy, for all of his power, he's not very creative, he's only, he can only mimic the life God promises, but he can never provide it, and there's an example. Just as the son, Matthew 28, receives authority from the father, he says, all authority has been given to me, right, and he, as he charges disciples to go out into the world... We see the beast receiving authority from the dragon, Revelation 13, 4. Just as the Holy Spirit's job, John 16, 14, is to glorify the Son, the Holy Spirit's always trying to make much of the Son, the false prophet is making much of the beast, Revelation 13, 12. So we have this counterfeit trinity, an alternative life from the life God offers, which, by the way, I think is the interpretive key to understand this next thing that some of you are waiting for me to get to, and that is this mark. Mark. And now, to be clear, there have been numerous and multitude of interpretations and attempts to figure with precision what exactly or who John is referring to. And as early as the second century, uh, the church father, Irenaeus, could not figure out, within not even a hundred years of John writing this, he couldn't figure out with precision what or who John was referring to, right? And that, so, I don't think after 2,000 years of more speculation, we're going to get any closer. I, I just think this is one detail. Now, John's readers knew... They must have known because John said this requires wisdom. Calculate the number. It is a man's number, six hundred and sixty-six. But I think that's something that's just kind of lost to history to us. Now, this number is often thought to be a cryptogram, or it's kind of like a cipher. In ancient cultures, including the Hebrew culture and Greek culture, they engage in a practice. And today, if you have any Jewish friends, that might be a little bit mystical. They're into like Kabbalah or something. They have a practice called uh, gematria, and that's where you translate letters into numbers. So you can make codes, and it's a way to communicate, and and sometimes they go crazy with it. We have seen that numbers are significant, and when you think about it from a physics standpoint, numbers are behind a lot of the physical reality we experience, but Kabbalah and Geomatra go crazy with it, so much so that when I first became a Christian, they were teaching me about the mark of the beast and who it was, and do you know who it was, at least in the late 80s, right? It was what? Yeah, it was Ronald Reagan. You remember that? What, really? Yeah, Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666. Oh, my gosh. And he's building the Star Wars platform in space and nuclear weapons. Oh, this is the mark of the beast, right? Yeah, (laughs) That, that did not pan out. But that's an example of, by the way, that was horrible use of it because you were using ancient Greek in a Hebrew culture, but you were applying that to English. And all of a sudden, everyone believed it. I'm not sure. In their time, the closest Caesar, because this would have been, remember Rome was the big persecutor, the closest Caesar would have been Nero, but even the numbers don't match up. The problem is, Nero wasn't the Caesar during the time of this persecution. As I said, John's readers would have known, but it's lost to us at this point. That being said, in keeping with the genre of the book, I don't take 666 as a cryptogram as much as I take it as a symbolic another symbolic um, Concept. 666 six, six is a number that falls short of perfection. We have taught you that seven is significant in this book. Seven, we're, we're talked about completion, perfection, maturity, rest. We see it all through the book of Revelation, and six gets really close but it doesn't quite make it. I believe what John is also communicating is that this beast constantly fails and will fail in its purposes. It's failure upon failure upon failure. We may be dealing with a counterfeit trinity, but it's also a trinity of abject failure is part of John's message here. Now, some people may be satisfied with that, but other people say, but but no, but I've been taught it's an actual mark. There's got to be a mark. When I believe in the context we're also dealing with just another counterfeit. Keep in mind, if you know your Bibles, as far back as Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema, God said that his people would bear his law in their hands and have it on their foreheads. Now, you may have seen some Jews, they are called phylacteries, they wear boxes on their hands and literally on their foreheads. I think they missed the point, But that's the idea. The idea was that God's law was your authority, and you lived under submission to the law in all that you thought and all that you did. So it was on your hand and upon your forehead. In a similar way, we see that God's people are also sealed in a similar manner. It's not a physical mark, but rather it's an expression of the thousand ways we live our lives and in terms of the mark of the beast it's an expression of the thousand ways we show our alignment with this world how we conform our values shape our allegiances and desires for the things of this world could the mark be a barcode could the mark be a QR code i suppose yes if it was symbolic for your absolute need to consume all the time and you believe the materialism bringing you happiness so you're always buying things and scanning the QR code or the barcode. So yeah, that could be a mark because that associates you with the world system. You're more interested in just having stuff than to be having the gospel, having Christ. So yeah, could the barcode be the mark? Yeah, it could be a symbolic expression of where your heart's already at. Could the barcode be an RFID chip? Again, yes. Yes if it causes you to invest your life into right-wing conspiracies and conservative worldliness apart from christ could the barcode be vaccines yes if your whole life is caught up in preserving your health to the neglect of your spiritual obligations towards christ my point is the mark It's not, at the end of the day, a a physical thing about consumption, technology, or health, as much as it is the outward expression of the allegiances and desires of your heart and who you will serve with and in your life. So the mark can be these things, but they also can't be these things. Christians can buy things, and that's not the mark of the beast. Christians can find things with an RFID, and that's not the mark of the beast. Christians can get the vaccine, and that's not the mark of the beast. I mean, think about the logical inconsistency. If the mark was a physical thing, and you got it by accident, well, what now? Like, now I was loving the Lord, and I was totally trusting Him, but I got this thing at Disneyland, and then it turns out it's the mark. I'm doomed. <laughs> I mean, really? Can God, you know, like we read from Romans 8, that nothing can separate you from the love of God, but if you went to Disneyland, and you got an RFID chip, now you're doomed? Is that how weak God is? Think about it. It just doesn't make sense. The point is, the mark It's not something that we brand on us, but it's really the reality of what comes out of us. Will you obey God or will you obey your feelings? That's your mark. Will you obey God or will you obey your lusts? That's the mark. Will you obey God or the world? That's your mark. Now, practically, to show you how, in some ways, we are marked. And so I'm using the word a little differently here. In the road of our home, there are certain TV shows we will not watch. There are certain values we will not embrace, ideologies we will not bow down to. And I'm, I know I annoy my kids because things happen at their school and I'm calling up their teacher and I, I can just sit like, dad, now I'm going to, she's going to treat me mean or whatever. But I believe there are certain ideologies I stand up against. If you're a Christian, there are certain business practices you will not follow. All these things we do because we are citizens of a different kingdom. We are the son or daughter of a different father. We are ambassadors of another nation. And we are sealed by that king. We are adopted by that father. And we are set apart as a holy priesthood from a different, and a holy nation. And we are marked very differently than what the mark of the beast is. By the way, we've actually already seen this mark in action in Revelation, haven't we? You recall with me in Revelation chapter 2, the church of Smyrna, as one example, those early Christians, they had refused to bow the knee to Rome and to worship Caesar. They refused to compromise the truth of the gospel and participate in their, in their trade guilds, cultic festivals. They refused to do those things, and remember, they paid the price for it. As a result, they were ousted from the economic and social structures of their communities. And so they were misunderstood. They were slandered. They were persecuted. They were exiles in their own home. They couldn't interact with the society because they realized they had a seal, a different mark than everyone else, and they could not participate. And God says, You look, you, you know your poverty, but I know you are rich. We've seen the mark in action in Christians who say, I cannot participate because I am marked, I'm sealed with a different mark than the world. By the way, this is where um, sometimes chapter and verse divisions are not helpful. Notice at the very end of chapter 13, um, verse 18, it talks about this. Let me just re- so let me just read chapter uh, 13, 18, right into the next verse in chapter 14. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is a number of a man, and his number is 666. And I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with them, one hundred forty-four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Immediately, John is contrasting the mark of the beast with those who are marked by the Lamb. And there's no physical mark on these one hundred forty-four thousands. The point I'm making at this is another counterfeit of the enemy. Just as God has always marked off His people, the enemy marks off His people. Well, we need to move on. That's the mark. Let's look at the final thing, and that is the end, and that's chapter 14. Let me just read it, because we didn't read it earlier intentionally, but let me conclude with it now. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name on His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters. And like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. Did you notice three times this this tremendous cacophony of voices that John's trying to describe in three different ways. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Now, this should make you think about uh, Revelation 4 and 5 because we've seen this scene before. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. No one can sing the song of redemption who hasn't been redeemed. That's why no one can sing the song. These 144,000 represent those whom God has called from the earth. You and I, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, total symbolic language. I know you want me to unpack that, but I'm not going to. For they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth was no lie found, for they are blameless. If you look at that verse, it's a total contrast to the people who follow the beast. No blasphemy is coming from our mouth. Our mouths are blameless. What is John writing here? What he is giving to us is after a detailed and somewhat somber intelligence report of what we have to face, John quickly moves through the storm into the dawn of a new morning. And he's seeing a vision. He's saying, have hope. Hear the applause. Hear the sound of the victory parade as they are standing on Mount Zion, victorious with the Lamb because they follow him wherever he goes. Friends, if you are a Christian, it can be tempting to feel that this world is overwhelming, that we are living at the last times. It's it's like the the human sexuality agenda is everywhere. Identity, politics, woke corporations, progressive Christianity, natural disasters, climate change, civil wars, unrest, everything in Afghanistan, south of Africa. It just seems like it's all falling apart. The reality is it's always been falling apart. Since Genesis chapter 3. Just part of it is that with global communication technologies, now we're aware of how bad it actually is, right? And now we feel all of a sudden, it's, it's bad. And the Lord's been like, yeah, so bad it cost me my son. Now you're getting with the program? Really? It's true. Friends, my favorite scene, and I'll conclude with this, that's from 1996, Men in Black. Tommy Lee Jones is like, uh, fights aliens from, that's about to destroy the world, and the world's always about to be destroyed, and Will Smith is seeing the monitor of all these catastrophes and close calls, and, and he's panicking, he's saying, you got to do something, and Tommy Lee Jones, in that cool way he has, it says, what, the world's always about to end, you just never knew it, Right? When we read this, we can start panicking and start feeling overwhelmed. We've got to do something. We've got to vote the right people in. We've got to to have activism or whatever. And, And again, yeah, be civically minded. Be a responsible citizen. All that stuff's true. But remember I said you will worship what you fear? Don't let your realization of the overwhelming nature of the world turn into idolatrous worship. You can do that as a Christian. Rather, lean into your faith be salt and light in this world in whatever capacity and way God has given you. That might be as simple as with Instagram. uh, I don't do Facebook anymore, but I got into this Instagram because it's really cool. I'm following Christian organizations like Voice of the Martyrs. Almost every day they're reminding me of, of people who've given their life for the gospel, what's going on in persecuted churches, and it informs the way I'm gonna pray. The study of Revelation has made me much more thoughtful about the fact that our brothers and sisters around the world, their blood's being shed in the sand and I'm grumbling and complaining about my petty first world problems. It gives me perspective. Friends, be involved in your local church. Show up at the Lord's Supper service and, and hear from Ted and his desire to, to get involved in stopping human trafficking, or, or Tristan and his desire to help, out, help the homeless and minister to them. Be involved in the local church and, and, and get involved in pro-life initiatives or whatever it might be. We don't all have to do the same thing. In fact, we shouldn't all do the same thing, but all of us should be doing something. Because God has got us here for that purpose. And as he's promised us, he's protected us. But it's going to be war. But we win the war. But the battle still needs to be fought. If this sounds like I'm repeating myself for the last four weeks, like I've run out of material, um, that's partly true. I mean, it's not that I run out of material. I'm repeating myself. (laughs) Because the pattern is there, isn't it? The pattern is there. The seven seals have opened and the world's gone to chaos, but God says, but I've sealed my people. The seven trumpets are blowing and God's judgment is coming down and it's all going to chaos, but I've sent my people out into the world. The dragon and the beast, they're after the offspring of the woman. They want to crush what God is doing. You are in a battle, but you will win. The message is the same. We are in a battle, the war has been fought, but there will be casualties, get at it, and you notice with every rotation, it gets bigger and more cataclysmic, and finally it'll wrap itself up at the very end of this book, and it will wrap up, most importantly, with Christ putting an end to it all, and that's not gonna be symbolic, right? The reality is these, these principles, they always have physical embodiment throughout history, but it's all going to a point in history where it will all turn around. We only have a little time left. I only have, there's this like a website, if you're a freak pant, there's a website you can find out when you'll die. Like you, you put in your information, it tells you when you're gonna die. So I kind of know when I'm gonna die, at least by this website. <laughs> and, and I've got this app, it's really cool. It shows me how much time I have left in my life. And it does it in a very cute way, like little marbles bounce around. Yeah, have you guys seen these? The, the point of it is, I look at it, obviously not enough or I could pull it up for you right away, but it, it is really cool, but it just shows me how much time I have left. It's not much, actually, it's not much. <laughs> but that's true. We don't have much time. Let's enjoy the goodness that God gives us, family, friends, vacation, life here in South Orange County, but not to the neglect of getting after our jobs and taking advantage of the goodness we have to make a difference, especially for our brothers and sisters who can't. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.